Good morning and, uh, and welcome to the Food Founders interview. One of the critical things that food founders need to be, you know, need to master is understanding retail buyers and getting comfortable and, uh, well, ideally proficient at selling. And this morning's guest is Karen Green. She's someone who's been on both sides of the negotiating table in her career. Um, and today she's a, an author, a speaker, an advisor, uh, and a frequent face on uh, or voice on LBC. <laughs> Only in the last week, but... <laughs> she began her career as a retail buyer with uh, Tesco and then Boots and held a number of commercial roles within, within food businesses. She says she was born into retail as her father was a manager of a department store and she's usually experienced at the nitty-gritty of making food products uh, profitable and successful for both buyers and, uh, and sellers as well. So welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I guess the first thing to ask is, is how did you start your career? Did you have a burning desire to get into food or retail or how did you start? Um, I've always been interested in food. So even as like a, a toddler, I used to make mud pies in the garden. So um, and <laughs> nothing's changed. <laughs> it's all this pretty similar stuff. Um, and then, as you mentioned, my father ran a department store in Newbury and um, I was Actually, I did some modeling for him when I was about five, um, modeling kids clothes, obviously. And then later on um, was a Saturday girl. Went to uni, started with maths and management science, um, which clearly has nothing to do with food or retailing. Um, and I have to be completely honest, found the maths a bit tough. So dropped the maths, um, concentrated on management science. And then in my final year was doing retail marketing and applied as you did in those days on the milk round and was offered a job at Tesco on their buyers scheme. Um, and the rest is history, as they say. So how did how did buying differ between Tesco and Boots or is it effectively the same the same thing in those days because it is a long time ago Boots was very risk averse um whereas Tesco at that stage was still number 2 and very much gung ho trying to get to number 1 um and probably more willing to do some more interesting things um they were also um still buying some products locally um, and sourcing locally. So one of my first jobs was to centralise um, wet fish and seafood. So um, whereas Boots was all centrally driven. So quite different. But I would say that whole risk averse piece is probably the biggest, biggest difference. And the other piece for me was as a buyer at Boots, I was buying vitamins and supplements and I was by far the biggest market share so if you bought if you wanted to sell vitamins you wanted to sell them to me and if I didn't like you you didn't get 30 percent 40 percent whatever we had in those days of the market so what's it like working in the buying team most buying teams will have um the commercial person which is the buyer they'll have um product developer of some description or other that might be within the company or it might be within the supplier and so when I was at Boots we had Boots contract manufacturing so they did all our production for us but we had um, technical people at our end then you've got supply chain um, marketing catman and that's kind of the inner group and then as you go out then you've got the stores the warehouses the um the suppliers, obviously, and the, and the broader team. So it's, I think, one of the things people don't realise is how 
ridiculously busy you are as a buyer, um, not talking to suppliers, you know, not buying, basically. What you're doing is, is dealing. And then you you have a lot more crises than, than you would expect. It depends on, obviously, the, the product category. Um, but even with vitamins, which is an ambient, you'd think, stable product, we had quite a lot of product recalls, even in those days. Two things, I guess. One is actually you spend a lot of time dealing with Boots or Tesco's and the internal stuff. Yeah. And then the other one is, is once you've bought something and it's on the shelf, your job doesn't stop then and you move on to the next thing. You're still dealing with that that product in, in the business. You are. And certainly with, with vitamins and some of the food products I've worked with on the other side of the table, you'll get incredible spikes. So obviously at the moment, you, you know, we talked about LBC, um, where I've been talking about the shortage of, of fruit and veg. The fruit and veg buyer right now is going to be having a tough day, let's be honest. Um, so that's that's quite hard. That seasonality with vitamins, if you get a piece in the Daily Mail saying, which we did at the time, um, vitamins increase your IQ, you're out of stock. Absolutely out of stock, and 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 you don't. It's it doesn't happen quite so much now, but you still see it. So you're dealing with that. You're dealing with promotions. You're dealing with the fact that somebody forgot to declare the milk allergen on them. You know, and and so you have to deal with that. We've I went through two public recalls um, when I was on the other side of the table, and and that's just a lot of work. There's a system for it, but you still want to manage that system through. So, so it sounds like if you're if if you're a buyer and you're successful and you you pick up a a, a good product that gets some traction, you don't get a pat on the back. You get the question saying, "Well, wh- why why can't we sell more of this? Where's where's more of it? Where's the supply?" Sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's no there is no peace, and I think that's that's the case when you're when you're a food manufacturer as well because you're when you're starting, you're trying to sell more, but then if you have, I mean, the best example of that is Little Moons. So they went viral, what is it, two years ago on TikTok. Fabulous. They were already in, in um, Tesco's and Waitrose and they went out of stock. Well, I can bet you that buyer wasn't going, oh, well done. That's amazing. <laughs> like, where's my little moons? Get me some more now. <laughs> it's the, you've turned the money off, I guess, is, is the, the reality, isn't it? If you can't sell it, you can't... Um... Yeah, I mean, you can't sell fresh air. So if you've got empty shelves... You need to put something on them. Um, and and the other problem is you have limited shelves and therefore what you put on them has to sell. And if it's a new thing, it's got to sell more than the old thing. And that's the other problem, especially with a lot of startups who have fabulous products that fill the gap. But if they're not... Um, if they're too risky or the buyer's just not sure, they're going to stick with what they got, right. with exceptions. And, and then from there, you kind of moved into sort of commercial roles, um, which were probably, I guess, different between being the commercial um, person on the on the you know on the on the retail side versus a, a producer. How did that come about? What did you learn? Have you got any kind of advice for people selling into into those roles? Crossing the table for me coincided with leaving Boots, which was, as I say, risk averse, but also quite paternalistic and quite supportive. I moved to a a, a Canadian company, actually, which um, was Cop Beverages. I can't remember what they're called now, but they basically still produce most of the own label fizzy pop. 
um they had a completely different attitude it was fast moving it was profitable it was like you got to do this got to do that numbers 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 um and dare i say it the other thing is when i was the buyer of vitamins everybody was really nice to me <laughs> and then <laughs> when you're in sales and you're selling to because i was selling to um that very first job mns and then it was asda and tesco the buyers aren't super nice to you. And actually, when you get back to the office, people aren't super nice to you either, because nine times out of 10, you haven't got good news. <laughs> so, so I suddenly went, oh, nobody loves me now. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's, that's tough. And I think um, if, if, you're in, if you're in a sales role within a company, um, that's difficult because you are having to, um, sell products sell concepts to buyers but you're also having to sell what the buyer wants back into the organization and finding the solution for that is is difficult and i think if you are a food founder and i've seen this a lot working with clients you're you're more emotionally invested in those brands so whereas you know in theory i could shut the door and go home and go yeah whatever it's just a job i'm still going to get paid as a food founder, if somebody rejects your products, and I I can think of two examples just without hard, thinking hard about it, where the food founders really, really struggled with it and come out going, what the heck? Why are they being so mean? They're not being mean. They're just being commercial. Yes, that's that's tough. What can food founders do to approach buyers in the right way and, and you know, help them get be successful? I think without plugging my book, but I'm going to plug my book, um, the whole point of, of biology, which is the book that's coming out next month, was to say the right way to sell is to really to get to know who you're selling to. And that's on three levels. So I've, I've created this matrix, but it, it, it replies pretty much in, in any selling B2B or, um, concept. You need to think about the buyer. So a lot of people make the mistake and I do it too. We all do it. We go, oh, I've got to write to these 10 people. So I'm going to sell my book. So dear LBC, here's my book. It's lovely. It sells this stuff. You'd love it because your listeners love, love Karen. And then you go, oh, I'm going to send it to the Times on, you know, da, 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 da. I'll send the same one. It's fine. But actually, what that misses is the fact that it's not thinking about who that person is. So my personality and your personality are very different. The way I work, as we've just done, identified, is I leave it until three minutes before the start of the webinar to see if I've actually got the link. You, on the other hand, will prepare and write to me 10 minutes before going, I know you're going to forget to go and do this. <laughs> Have you actually looked? And, and that's just a tiny example of the dif of difference of two people. And a lot of retail buyers are red personalities, um, similar to me. So they're going to be last minute. They they're, can be quite brutal, but they've got short attention spans. So you have to write a short email. If you get somebody who's um, maybe more of a procurement manager, who's a more detailed, conscientious blue personality, they want a lot of detail. Now, you need to get both of those right to get the attention. So that's before you actually even say anything, it's, it's structuring the email. 
And then the second part is the company, which I think we're better at. But even again, do I tailor it to LBC or the Times or do I just go, oh, yeah, they're about the same? Or do I actually sit down and have a look at the language they use, look at their website, look at the social media? If I've got time, yes. If I haven't, no. But I think, and then the third part of the model is about the buyer versus the seller and uh, sorry, of the company and saying, well, how does the buyer interact with the company? So what are they trying to achieve in their job? which is a little bit advanced. And frankly, if you're just picking emails out of the air from LinkedIn, you're not going to get all of this information. But the more information you can get about who you're writing to and approaching, the better and the more successful it's going to be. And then as you progress through that relationship, so if you get them to reply, you get to meet the buyer, you can then you do the same process again, but then you plan that meeting so that, you're taking your lovely things, you're thinking about what they need, and you're tailoring the message. So it's all about tailoring and adapting all the way through the process. And also probably picking the right people, because I think if you, and, and I had this with a client, she's still in Tesco, but she got Tesco's as her very first customer, which is amazing absolutely amazing however could we sell it to anyone else oh. whole foods wouldn't touch us planet organic wouldn't touch us because it was already in tesco or just it was already in tesco so you know if if you're new and you want to go or if you want to go into selfridges they want new stuff they want innovation so you know adrian boswell will say has said to me if it's the day it goes on the shelf, it's old to them. Now, you know, I've quoted this to people before and they go, well, well, they've got twinings and that's been around since 1855 or whenever it's been around. And that's true. But when they're looking for new, if they're looking for innovation, that's what they do. It sounds like sometimes the, 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 the commercial director or the, the, the person leading the buying um, function almost sets the kind of tone for the thing but probably varies more between selfridges and tesco than it does elsewhere but is that and that, that's kind of why you tailor the message or think about your sort of strategy in terms of where you go and try and engage if you if you go to any kind of training a lot of people will talk about your unique selling point but what you have to remember is the buyer also has or the retailer has a unique selling point so selfridges is about um, planet earth it's about sustainability but it is also about innovation and newness tesco and and they're fairly affluent customers and a lot of tourists or they were tesco is mid-market it's bang smack in the middle of mid-market they still got 20 percent of the of the marketplace they're not going to be selling highly expensive things because their shelves need the rate of sale to justify the space so the two products could sit on Selfridges shelves. And I said Twinings, they may not stock Twinings, which is a good example. They might have Twinings in both stores, but they might have different ranges. They might have different configurations. So it's it's all about thinking about, well, what's our USP? What's their USP? And where's the overlap? And that's what you're selling, that bit that overlaps. I haven't got that in the book. I might have to, <laughs> need to do it an addendum. The epilogue. The epilogue. <laughs> 
Um, and and how is this? Is is this something that's changing in terms of supermarkets and shoppers and food businesses? And I suppose is it changing in the context of cost of living struck, cost of doing business as well? So what's changing um, is, and obviously I I'm very old, so I started my career before emails. Um, I used to get letters from suppliers. They go, dear Karen, we've got this lovely vitamin. Would you like it? And they might put a sample or something. Um, and what's changed is the fact, and there is some research that shows buyers probably, I think, spend 5% of their time with suppliers, which means they're spending 95% of their time. Yes, some of it is dealing with all that other stuff we've talked about, but they are also doing research. And I think post the pandemic, people have got used to the online research. And even, you know, I don't know whether they're using ChatGPT and AI to find things, but they're going out and they're saying, right, I've, I'm doing a range review on, let's carry on with the tea analogy. What's new in tea? So I'll Google, what's, what's new in tea? And then I'll go on to Instagram. Let's have a look at tea. Or um, they'll look at the hashtag tea category and something exciting will come up from Japan and then they'll go down and, and so you need to be on their radar um and I've just come off a call with a with a client um who makes hot sauces and we've just been talking about you know you need to touch someone or, or someone needs to see you 11 times but they also need to see you and again I don't know what this is based on in four different places and I think that's the other important thing, whereas before you just send an email or you send a letter going, dear Karen, I want to sell you some vitamins. I go, well, that's interesting. Or no, that's not interesting. Whereas now I'm, I'm looking and I've seen all the vitamins and I'm thinking, well, actually, I'm quite interested in that one. And then I get an email from you and I go, well, that's interesting. Then I go onto social media and see if you've only actually got four followers. And I go, no, you're not serious. So you see the, the difference now. Sorry, I didn't actually answer your question about, <laughs> about inflation. So that's the first thing that's changed. Fine. The second thing, yes, you're right. Inflation, I think, and the focus on price increases is doing two things. One is it's oh, probably three. It's taking up more buyer's time. So they've got to put price increases through. Um, they've got to do those negotiations. They haven't got time for the good stuff. The second one is they're more risk averse. So they're not sure we're gonna do anything like that. Let's just stay with what we know. Um, and then the third one, and this is relevant to a lot of my clients who are working in the higher, more, more premium end, people have got less money. So are they willing to go and trade up? And that's a debate for another day, but yes, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough out there. Do they spend their time looking to swap what they've got for something with more margin or is it not somewhere they'd focus? Yes, margin will be key. They're always going to be wanting to move that trajectory upwards. Um, it depends what their KPIs are. So they might be looking to increase market share. So they might be looking at Nielsen and going, oh, hang on a second. Waitrose are selling loads more of this of the tea category. Why are we not selling more tea? Um, so they, they could be looking at that. So that's market share. They could be saying, well, actually we want to grow our sales. So how do we get more footfall? Um, 
do we need to sell more stuff? So do we need to promote or do we need to bring in higher value products, which moves the overall category up? Do buyers play a role in negotiating or onboarding someone into the into this retailer? Do they then play an ongoing role in terms of negotiating the price? And I suppose if we talk about inflation and margins, that, that's their that's their role as well. Yeah, most buyers um, will be very commercial. So some sometimes they won't necessarily be selecting products. So like in MS, they're going to be more focused on someone else will be focused on the products and they'll go with these are the products. Um, but yes, the financial side of it is very key and it carries on being key. And once you've launched into a retailer, they're then going to be looking at all of those parameters again. So rate of sale is going to be a critical one. So um, the buyer will be looking, the buyer will probably tell you, I know within two weeks if this product's going to succeed. Right. So you have to really put um all of your effort in probably not the first week because they won't get it out on shelf in the first week but maybe the second week put a lot of effort in um to really get getting that momentum but then you know the the point i think if i make one thing for people to take away it's the fact that if the buyer shows they love you it makes them vulnerable for negotiation. So a lot of what they do is undermine anything they can. And they're not necessarily doing it to undermine you, but it will strengthen their negotiation. But also they're looking for ways you can improve. So their rates of sale. um, Can we can we uh, your supply if your if your supply um, service level isn't good, pull you up on that. They're trying to make every single space on that shelf work as best that they can so i have uh, i have read your, your first book recipe for success and i know a lot of people i met who have read it as well find it very useful as a food founder what would you say the kind of the main ingredients uh pun intended obviously are for a successful food business i always quote coca-cola on this because if you don't have a strong commercial proposition it's not going to work and coca-cola is the biggest brand uh, biggest food brand or drink brand in the in the world and their cost of goods is pennies and they sell it for a markup of i don't know maybe got a bit worse now but at least five, five times ten times um the cost of goods um and i think the challenge with a lot of clients that I meet is they have some great products, great gaps that they've found, but it just doesn't make money and it doesn't make money at the start. And I know it doesn't make money at the start because the volumes are small and the economies of scale. However, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't work. Um, and I think that's that's the biggest source of success. And then the other thing is about branding. Um, and I'm really preoccupied with Huel at the moment. I don't know why, probably because I've been talking to a couple of people who, for whom it's a little bit relevant. And for me, Huel, I've, you know, we've heard of Huel. It's a strong brand. It's a really simple design. It started as direct consumer, but now the design, it stands out on the shelf. It looks amazing. People know what it is. It's not for me. I know that they're going to speak at Grocer and it's for Gen Z. It's not even for me, so I'm not going to buy any. But I know it and and I understand it and it works as a brand. And, you know, they've got the money to put behind it to do the branding and the branding is clear. And I think a lot of 
food companies when they start miss the fact they need to get that recognition because that's the way you get the traction that's the way you get the growth um and that's also the way you stop retailers doing um an own label version i'm sure there is an own label version of huel but i don't know that anyone would buy it no the, the new book what's that about so the new book is called biology know your buyer sell more and sell better and the the basic premise is that if you understand your buyer and you understand the company you're selling to you can then adapt your selling message and that's the first bit of the book and then the second book part of the book is applied biology which goes through my five-step um buyer acronym which is all around building awareness so that 11-4 that we talked about at the beginning creating a unique value proposition um not a unique selling point unique value proposition each word's really important in that um getting the buyer to yes so it talks also about negotiation which i did talk about in my first book and this is an update on that then we come on to execution um which you've highlighted you know once it's on the shelf what happens does it just sit there and and everybody's happy and we move on and do something else <clears throat> and then the r is all around um review reorder recommendation um and getting product um getting more basically so um whether that's reordering whether you're getting reviews online recommendations referrals excellent applied biology it sounds like there's going to be a, a, a degree in this yeah we will do some courses um probably towards the latter part of the year um but yes i know you and i've been debating is is selling an art or a science um I, I think it's a science. It's, you know, it's an ology. Um, and I think that's all of the things that I talk about in the book are measurable and tangible. So, you know, what, the way I talked about personality, I, I go through something called crystal nose, which helps you analyze. And I, those people who've listened to me talk before know about crystal nose, but it helps you analyze people's personalities. So you can actually do put some structure on it reviewing companies again you can put structure on it um but there is some art and creativity that you overlay on top of that because for me the art is actually taking all of that knowledge um and actually bizarre paradoxically probably the art is actually in the applied biology of saying well actually how do we create um a presentation how do we create an email how do we create um a product that that buyers are going to want to buy and i think that is is expression of art on top of the science which i haven't really thought about before so thank you <laughs> my take would be i guess that you, if you approach it scientifically you can get yourself to a decent level to um to kind of move your business forward you know the artist the top five percent i guess in terms of you know taking it to a, an, an additional level it is. And the important thing to say there, and you've maybe reminded me of something. There are lots of big companies that work in this space. So, you know, I've worked for some of them in ready meals and sandwiches, and they sit there all day thinking up new ideas. They have probably had your idea. And because they are the mathematicians, they are the category analysts, they are the people who've gone chunk, 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 chunk. 
this is a big, this is, this is a gap. This is a worthwhile gap. But 90, is it 95% of products fail, new products fail? It's a big number anyway. And a lot of com big companies, like I've just mentioned, fail. Because I think you're right, they don't have the art. They don't have the magic fairy dust that, that challenger brands and food founders can bring in. Yeah, I was going to ask, I guess who are the biggest influences on your career have been, or people you turn to for inspiration? When I first started working at Boots, as a as a junior buyer, um, I had a, a group buyer who, um, at the time, I wasn't performing very well. I I really didn't get it, um, and she basically she had told me she's a good friend of mine now. She said I gave you six months and then I was going to sack you. Um, and coming <laughs> I mean, out of the time, as so you say, brutal right. but useful. <laughs> it was brutal. Buyers can be brutal. Anyway, she she really coached me and she really turned me into a really good buyer and then took me um, through Boots. Um, and and actually out the other side, she's gone off. She went off to do other things. She's retired now and I went off to do other things. But I would say in within the industry, she's she's been pretty amazing. Um, and then. Who else would I be inspired by? Probably Richard Branson, actually, the fact that he. You know, he seems to be a juggler. He doesn't seem to get into detail, which obviously is, inspires me. Um, and he does it through building good teams. And I think that's critical. That's brilliant. Thanks so much, Karen. If you want to know more and, and sign up for Karen's newsletters, uh, you can go to biology.co.uk. You can listen to the previous uh, podcast interviews at uh, frogcock.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Bye-bye.